Welcome, everybody, to the second edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined, as always, by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. A lot has happened since our last podcast, Eric. Brian Mason was selected as Notre Dame's special teams coach. Harry Heastand's return to Notre Dame as offensive line coach was greenlit. Wednesday night, we learned that Baylor wide receivers coach Chancey Stuckey will uh, fill the same role for Notre Dame. And today, Thursday, brought the shocking news of defensive line coach Mike Elston's departure to Michigan. And that just covers the news on the coaching carousel front um, because the news cycle is spinning so quickly. We're going without a guest again. It's hard to book a guest when you don't even know what the most important topic would be <laughs> an hour an hour ahead of time. Uh, so we have a number of questions on those coaching topics, so we'll get to them soon. Um, but we, we wanted to cover some of the news of the day, which wasn't necessarily captured in the questions that we asked for yesterday on Wednesday. So um, let's start with, with Mike Elston, Eric. Um, just, I guess, just to start, how, how big of a loss is that for Notre Dame? And uh, I mean, <laughs> one to 10 scale of surprising, where would you rank that? Well, I'll start with how big of a loss it is. I think, uh, you know, n- nobody's irreplaceable, but there are a lot of things that Mike Elston brought to the table for a first-year head coach that I think would have been really valuable to have him around. One is stability. I mean, he knows the program as well as anybody. He's been there for 12 years uh, before his departure. He knows the ins and outs of recruiting and uh, how to run a national recruiting, you know, uh, footprint where, where a lot of people don't know how to do that. I, I think Marcus will be able to jump right in there, but having another person to be able to do that. Then when you just get down to the position and I'm, I'm including this and in what I'm writing for my column tomorrow, the kind of post, national championship game takeaways, uh, looking through kind of lens of the assistant coaches. Mike Elson was a great developer of talent, and he was also a pretty darn good recruiter. And those two things alone are are really valuable. The thing that kind of goes on top of it is something that Alabama has throughout its roster, and that's this unselfishness, this family atmosphere where they're – the stars and the guys that are, you know, budding stars that are having to play maybe only eight reps a game are all so tight knit. There's a camaraderie that kind of overcomes the maybe frustration to jump into the transfer portal um, kind of as a knee jerk reaction. Everybody seems to be happy. Um, and happy for each other. And I think that builds a lot of success. So I think all those elements to me are things that Notre Dame will miss about uh, Mike Elston and that you'd really like to find in the next defensive line coach. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's definitely a big loss. I mean, just to, just considering the guys that he helped convince come back, um, and not leave for the NFL draft, being Isaiah Foskey and Justin and Jason Adamalola. Um, that was an incredible 
win for Notre Dame this offseason. Um, my understanding, I don't, I don't think those guys were blindsided by this news as as, as many reporters or fans were um, today on Thursday. Um, so I, I would imagine those guys stick with their decision. I mean, they technically could change their minds because the they have until through the 16th to, to declare for the NFL draft. I, I don't anticipate that changing. Um, I think their decision is, is bigger than Mike Gelston, but obviously he played a, an important role in that. Um, he, I mean, Notre Dame's defensive front, which most of the sacks came from the defensive line, tied the school record for, for sacks in a season with 41 this past year. Um, and uh, I think that, I think Mike Elston has been getting better. I mean, I mean, that, that sounds sort of normal, but I don't think that's always the case in the coaching industry. I think sometimes guys may slip or maybe lose their touch. And it seems like Mike Elston was getting better throughout his time at Notre Dame. Whether I, mean, I think that's on both fronts, both as a coach and as a recruiter. I think he certainly had some stinker of recruiting classes um, at, at times earlier in his career at Notre Dame. And he, he was hitting at a higher rate. And especially if you look at the 2023 class with Keon Keeley and Brendan Vernon with Marcus Freeman at his side, um, those are two of the best defensive linemen that he's had commit to him um, at Notre Dame. And so that'll certainly be a priority, making sure those guys are still comfortable um, coming to Notre Dame. I imagine Marcus Freeman has to get very involved with those guys um, in the meantime, while they search for a defensive line coach and defensive coordinator. Um, so certainly a big loss for Notre Dame, um, a, a big game for Michigan. Um, I guess I, I know I've seen lots of negative reactions from folks, um, whether it's on the insider lounge mess, message board or on Twitter, um, especially when it comes to Michigan, when a, when a coach leaves Notre Dame for Michigan, uh, Notre Dame fans aren't, aren't going to love that. Do you, do you understand why? Mike Elston would leave for Michigan just a month after talking about how important um, Notre Dame and South Bend were to his family. Well, I haven't spoken to Mike about it, but I've spoken to Mike in the past when he's been passed over for defensive coordinator promotions. Um, and also it is Mike's alma mater, but I don't think that really enters into it. I, I think if you, I mean, I think if you asked, the casual Notre Dame fan where Mike Elston had gone to school, they would have had no clue it was Michigan. He's never been kind of, even when Notre Dame's played Michigan, he hasn't gotten too revved up about more about playing Michigan other than the fact that uh, it's a big game on Notre Dame's schedule regardless. Um, and so you had asked me earlier how surprised I was. And I, I was surprised because you know, Mike had made that public declaration that he wasn't going anywhere and he was doing this for his family. But I know that there's been frustration at times with getting passed over for defensive coordinator roles. And maybe this time it was just a tipping point with him. Now, why wouldn't he go with Brian Kelly to LSU initially? Again, maybe, maybe some of it's a little bit of, of geography, you know, with the family that if they go to Ann Arbor, they're still pretty close to South Bend where, you know, and, and, uh, Beth Elston's from Ohio, Mike's from Ohio. Uh, they're still in the Midwest rather than going to a different part of the country. So, I mean, Mike's 
goal his his whole life, his whole coaching life has been one balancing family and this business that requires you to be a workaholic. And two, I mean, he had to have Kurt Heinisch go to the daddy daughter dance one year <laughs> for him. And he, he sweated all over the girls, but they had a good time. And the other is he wants to be a head coach. He told me he had, he wants to be a head coach. And if he isn't a coordinator at some point, it's hard to envision somebody giving him that that chance other than a really bad rebuilding job. Um, you know, they they would roll the dice with Mike on a bad rebuild, but he's not going to get a, a good job where he has a chance to succeed. And so, and, and, and some of the jobs he's passed on, boy, he's got to count his blessings. I mean, the first one, he was offered out of Notre Dame was to go with uh, Bob Diaco to Connecticut and be his defensive coordinator. My goodness, what would have <laughs> happened if that Talk that about a in job? <laughs> right, right. I mean, he could be, you know, be a uh, somebody running a uh, Notre Dame website now and and uh, <laughs> and having that kind of salary. So, but so it it makes some sense when when a coach wants to get a head coaching job another case in point is Jamarcus Shepard who is in the running for uh, for the wide receiver opening at Notre Dame and he's done well at Purdue and was in a pretty good position at Purdue Purdue was an easy place to sell wide receivers because of how many times coach Brom liked to throw the ball um, but, um, he wants to be a head coach and he wants more titles and he wants, um, you know, the exposure that's going to help turn him into a head coach. And I think that's why he was interested in this job. Same thing with Tony Alford going to Ohio state. Now it hasn't happened for Tony, but Tony's perception was that going with urban Meyer and being in that program was going to give him more of an opportunity to, to be a head coach at some point. And he was named assistant head coach uh, right out of the gate. And, uh, but he has not been uh, converted to a head coach yet. So all those things I think kind of are in the mix for Mike. And, and I think the frustration just maybe finally boiled over for him. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be interested to, to sort of see where his career goes from here. I, I don't, I mean, I know he's a Michigan alum, but I don't know that he's going to spend the next 12 seasons up in Michigan now. Uh, I think this is sort of like the first move to start maybe being more aggressive and proactive and, and trying to climb that that coaching ladder. Now, trying to do that while balancing the importance of family, which I do think is important to him. I don't think he's just selling that to to right. the, like to to um, to get some good good responses uh, um, from fans, but I I, I do think that. Um, this sort of opens that door and probably makes it a little, once, once he gets out of Notre Dame and South Bend, I think it probably makes it a little easier to make that next step after that. Um, so, um, wish him the best. I know Notre Dame fans might not feel that way <laughs> being that he's coaching at Michigan. Uh, but I, I think, uh, I mean, he's, he was very valuable to Notre Dame, um, and they're going to Notre Dame is going to have its hands full trying to replace him. I, I know it's pretty early and I, I, I'm not always the best at having like a, a list of candidates ready 
um, because uh, I feel like there's usually time to catch up on that. But is there anyone that sticks out to you particularly that that Notre Dame should should pursue early on in terms of replacing Mike Elston? You know, I haven't studied it yet, um, but somebody told me Larry Johnson from Ohio State, and I said, okay, give me the reasons Larry would want to leave Ohio State. Uh, and they said, well, maybe he's friends with Marcus Freeman. You know, <laughs> I think Marcus Freeman's probably friends with everybody, but um, you have to have a reason to to leave a place. And I think unless he were going to be a coordinator, I think it's that's a difficult sell for, for Larry Johnson. But um, I do think that what they need to look for in in that position is trying to get as many of the qualities that Mike had, somebody that can build a culture, uh, somebody that can be a much better than average recruiter and somebody that is relentless in their teaching. Um, because we were fortunate enough back in the old setup when Notre Dame would go inside to the Loftus Center the defensive linemen were always over where the media was stuck. We we're stuck up in a balcony. Yeah. And so we got to watch the defensive line and you really could see why those guys progressed so well under Mike, just watching him in practice. And it was pretty entertaining too. Yeah. I mean, I think when you sort of start forming the list of, well, maybe these would be guys that Notre Dame would consider. I think you just sort of like look at connections to, either Notre Dame or the coaches in place. Now, certainly with Notre Dame not having a defensive coordinator in place, that um, limits uh, the connections and that could inform how Notre Dame proceeds with this. I'd be curious to see um, how, how, how they do that. I mean, maybe, maybe they end up finding a, a defensive coordinator who is a D-line coach, and then so that maybe isn't as big of a priority. But um, I, I, think, I think it probably – that probably doesn't make a, a ton of sense to have the defensive coordinator be the, the defensive line coach as well. But um, I know someone that Marcus coached with, um, I believe at Cincinnati uh, was, was uh, Greg Scruggs, who's, who I believe is their uh, defensive line coach currently. Um, Larry Black is, is, a, is a coach who was a graduate assistant under Mike Elston at Notre Dame who was recently hired as the Vanderbilt defensive line coach for Clark Lee. Um, now it may be tough to, to pull someone who just accepted a job, but I think obviously an opportunity at, at Notre Dame would be big. I, I know Tyler Stockton's name comes up sort of right away, given that he is the defensive coordinator at Ball State and played at Notre Dame. Um, there's a lot of names that I think um, will probably be good candidates in the long run. I think it's early for us to have a, a great grasp on, who those guys are right now, but we'll, we'll, we'll start digging into, into that. Um, as and I wouldn't roll out somebody coming from the NFL that has some college experience too. Right. There's a lot of, you know, the NFL coaching carousel just started and there's some good people that might make sense coming from the NFL ranks. Yeah. And um, beyond uh, the defensive line coach, like we mentioned, defensive coordinator is still, Open the latest development on that front is John Haycock deciding to stay at Iowa State, which I believe Football Scoop was among their first to report a couple hours ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on what his potential fit at Notre Dame would have been? Um, I know that's someone that we were sort of looking into in terms of that potentially being Notre Dame's next defensive coordinator. And then sort of the same question: Do you think there's a a, a, a clear line of who who's next 
in terms of candidates for for defensive coordinator for Notre Dame? What I liked about the potential John Haycock hire was his experience, his depth of experience, nine years as a head coach. Um, he had been a defensive coordinator a long time, 61 years old, um, a really good tactician. Uh, Iowa State was number nine in the country in total defense this past season. They held Oklahoma State to 332 total yards, about 220 fewer than Notre Dame held them, and they upset the Cowboys 24-21. Um, the, what what was the trade-off with a guy like John Haycock was that he was not a dynamic, it is not a dynamic recruiter. He's not a guy that's going to, uh, you know, be texting kids 15 hours a day or whatever. And uh, I'm not sure they would have needed him to do that if they surrounded him with the right people. And I think it would have been worth the trade-off. So I do think not getting John Haycock is, um, you know, I think is unfortunate. I, of the names that were in contention, I think he made the most sense for me. Now, um, I don't know that they've pushed away the all the other candidates. I know I was talking to somebody last night they really like Mike Tressel. And, and it's funny because they're both connected to Jim Tressel. Jim Tressel um, went to Ohio State and uh, John Haycock became the head coach at Youngstown State when Jim left for the job. And John was also the defensive coordinator at Youngstown State at the time. Mike Tressel was Jim Tressel's nephew he was a longtime defensive coordinator at Michigan State uh, before going to Cincinnati. And I've heard very good reviews on him. Now, I've heard his name in and out of the picture there. And boy, I'll tell you, if he left, I don't think there's anybody left at Cincinnati for Luke Fickle to have <laughs> next year. He's, they just lost, I think, their safeties coach today to Ohio State. Uh, but, um, you know, Mike Tressel is a guy that resonates with me. Um, he's 48 years old. He's got some experience. I don't know that Notre Dame's interest is in him as, as mutual you know, Marcus and Mike, I don't think work together. Mike was at Michigan state. Um, so, uh, but I like the fact that, that, um, of what he brings, the stability that he would bring. The, the challenge with a lot of these candidates like Derek Mason and some of them, and, and J John Haycock was this way, is that a lot of those guys are defensive back coach-oriented, that they've never coached linebackers. Not that they couldn't do that, but it's not their area of expertise. And with those four stud freshman linebackers coming in, I know James Laurinaitis is at least at this point was going to be just the uh, <laughs> analyst role, but um, I think you want somebody that is a really great teacher um, that can coach them. So I'm going to kind of recalibrate my choices there, but I think there's a lot of good ones. I think 
the profile of all the coaching candidates were guys that had a lot of experience and some had coaching experience. How about you, Tyler? Who do you like? Yeah, I don't know that I have any favorites. I think the experience is even more important now with Mike Elston out the door. Uh, I, I always thought that was pretty important to begin with. Um, but I think that is even heightened. I think, um, I think it's important that the, the next defensive coordinator maximizes the defensive line. Um, now, I, now, I said earlier, like, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense that it's necessarily a D-line coach, but I think it needs to um, embrace the amount of talent that Notre Dame does have on its roster on the defensive line. I'm not that – was, that was maybe my one hesitation with John Haycock is, like, how, how would that work out with his preferred – scheme is that would that would that be the best look for Notre Dame um, with the 3-3-5 defense now I know sometimes it can be deceiving by labeling things in, in, in numerical ways like that I mean um, calling Notre Dame's defense the 4-2-5 I feel like it isn't necessarily um, that <laughs> it, it, it essentially became more of a 4-3 but it was it was it was a cool way to talk about the rover in a different way um, I know there are certain diff different responsibilities uh, in, in different ways, but um, I, I just think um, I, I'm really fascinated to see where it goes. I, I don't know that I have a great answer in terms of this is, this is the guy um, that makes a ton of sense for Notre Dame. I think um, it's get, maybe going back to the drawing board of figuring out, okay, how do we, how do we get the best combination of what we need between this, this defensive coordinator opening and the defensive line coach opening um, because uh, even though Marcus Freeman is, is for the former defensive coordinator is going to have a hand in a lot of that. Those are, those are extremely important hires um, moving forward for the Irish. Right. And, and be mindful too, that not every defensive coordinator candidate, now let's say Elston and stay, not every defensive coordinator candidate would say, wow, I don't get to hire any of my staff. I've got, I've, even though these guys are good coaches, I'm, right. you know, I've got people that I want to bring with me. Uh, that may make the job not as attractive for them. And also, I think Marcus would like to stay as close schematically to what he's doing. Uh, I think John Haycock, you know, the 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 impression I got was that he would have adapted to what Notre Dame wanted to do. He adapted to what he did at Iowa state. And sometimes it was kind of more of a three, five, three. Um, and, and they were multiple up front. They ran some four down too. Right. But, but um, it was what was required in the big 12 when the big 12 was kind of the wild west shootout of offense. It's, it's settled down a little bit into more kind of traditional football ironically, but I think he would have adapted, but, you know, some somebody might say, "Gee, I, I want to bring in my scheme and um, and you know, kind of turn things upside down." I know Brian Van Gorder did. You know, he didn't want anything to do with what Bob Diaco was running, and Brian Kelly was on board with that. Unfortunately, you know, Brian Van Gorder really didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th th those are good points. Like, I I think. In modern fo modern fo football, both at the NFL and college level, like defensive schemes are less binary than four three versus three four. There's a lot more of multiple fronts and um, different looks. So I, I think you're probably right that if John Haycock decided to come here, 
he would have adapted uh, to to what Notre Dame was looking for. And I don't maybe maybe there was some hesitation about doing that, and that that could have been a part of him not coming to Notre Dame. I'm not totally sure. Uh, I don't know that I have enough information on that at this point. Well, it was interesting when I was researching him. He was like when Matt Campbell went from Toledo to Iowa State, you know, he's like, John, I'd like you to come with me. And he's like, I got to think about this. And he almost didn't leave Toledo. Um, And so he's a a real humble guy. I don't know that he wants to be in that huge spotlight. You know, this would have been the first time in his career that he really would have been at a blue blood school in a big role, you know, um, and I think maybe there's a comfort zone with being at Iowa State where the scrutiny both from the media and the fan base isn't quite as much. Not that he couldn't handle it, but maybe at age 61, he really doesn't want to try. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the defensive coordinator job at Notre Dame under Marcus Freeman will probably be a hot seat if that person isn't succeeding. Like, I don't know that Marcus Freeman can afford to have a lot of patience with with a defensive coordinator that isn't getting it, it getting the job done because of his background on on defense. So um, we'll see how how things play out there. Um, but let's go ahead and move forward to questions from our listeners slash readers slash subscribers. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at T James ND and Eric's at E Hansen ND. Uh, before we get into questions, Eric, I wanted to say uh, thank you for all the feedback and support from the first podcast that we released on this new Inside ND Sports podcast feed. Um, you should now be able to find us in your typical podcast platforms. Um, hopefully many of you already did that at this point in the podcast, but if you're still listening to us on SoundCloud because you think that is your only option, um, you should have much more options now to subscribe to us in any of those places, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. Um, and we'd, we'd love some ratings and reviews too, if you care to do that. First question I have for us, Eric, is from Tebby89 on the message board. With the hiring of Chancey Stuckey, do you, or do we know what he was doing in between his playing career and his GA role at Clemson in 2019? That seven-year window is a lot of time between, and even though he is the same age as Shepard, um, Demarcus Shepard, uh, seems that Shepard is light years ahead in experience with different head coaches and rosters, as well as recruiting different areas of the country, like a Notre Dame job requires. Um, <laughs> these message board questions don't require people to be as concise as the Twitter questions do. Uh, last line, curious what you guys are hearing as to what were the big factors in taking a chance on Chansey and not the proven commodity. Right. Um, so, the, let's go to the first part of that. In between his NFL career ending uh, and his little CFL interlude uh, with the Toronto Argonauts and then getting into coaching or college football world, there were a couple of things he did. He was into sports media for a while. And then he was, from what I could tell on his resume, um, on LinkedIn, it was, uh, it looked like wealth management, uh, but it, it was, um, a little bit vague in terms of this description. Um, we have some really good people that, um, Tyler's going to be able to be talking to 
that can speak better to why people saw such bright potential in Chansey, but really his personality and his potential and recommendations from Dabo Sweeney and Davey, Dave Aranda, really, I, I can't believe I called him Davey Aranda, Dave Aranda, <laughs> Bob Davey Aranda, um, oh, no. uh, Bob Davies. Um, <laughs> anyways, Dave Aranda and, and Dabo Sweeney gave him great recommendations. And I think, you know, Marcus being a first-time head coach probably was a little bit more apt to take a chance on somebody because of the recruiting aspect of it, somebody that had just such a dynamic personality. Now, from what I hear about Jamarcus, he was he brought the energy to practice the games into recruiting as well. Um, and so Chansey must have been that much better to to edge him out um, and edge Notre Dame going back to some other candidates. It sounded like Holman Wiggins got a raise at Alabama to stay there. That seemed like a difficult poll to begin with. Um, so it's going to be really, really interesting. It's, it's a, um, you know, no matter how many great things people have to say about him, it's, it's rolling the dice. Now, let me give you another example that maybe makes you feel better. You know, Ohio state in 2018 had a crisis with their wide receivers coach where they had to get rid of him and urban didn't really want to. And they made Brian Hartline a interim wide receivers coach. And he did so well with it that they made him the permanent wide receivers coach in 2019. I'm telling you, it wasn't long until he was regarded not only as one of the best teaching wide receivers coach coaches, but maybe the best recruiting wide receiver coach in the country, one of the best recruiters in the country. So it can happen fast, especially at that wide receiver position. It's, it's much different than offensive line or defensive line where it's so technique driven with the, with the teaching. So I'm excited. I'm excited to dive a little bit deeper into why people are so high on this guy. Yeah, I, uh, I, it, to me, it, and I, I messaged, I mentioned some of this on the message board earlier today, um, that it, it feels like a situation where, for whatever reason, Marcus Freeman and Tommy Reese are very comfortable with taking this chance on Chansey, not to to make that a pun, uh, but I, I do think that um I've, I've always found that judging coaching hires is very hard I, I i never know i never feel very strongly about okay this guy's gonna be a great hire like you can convince yourself of that based off of people's resume but i feel like you get such a better sense of that person and what his coaching style is like by getting to observe them and interact with them more um and obviously it's up to notre dame's coaches to sort of get through that stuff and figure that out without being able to necessarily always have that information um, that I would prefer as a journalist to, to, have, to feel strongly one way or the other about a, a coach. Um, I think that certainly, I, I mean, it seems like anytime you go to write a story about a new coach, you're going to be able to find plenty of people that speak highly about them. And it's, it's harder for us to get maybe some of the, the not 
other than whether there's like maybe holes in a resume or the, the resume is light, it's hard for us to get people to say, yeah, I don't really know about this guy. I don't know that he's going to, going to be very good. Uh, but it's hard to get people to say that, say that kind of stuff on the record. Now I think uh, Notre Dame should be able to get that kind of stuff out of, uh, out of people from having relationships in the coaching profession to get more of a, an honest look at that sometimes where then maybe we might be able to get as reporters, but um, it is certainly a fascinating hire, certainly not one that I anticipated until, um, I mean, until really it happened. I didn't, I didn't really have a great sense that that was what was going to happen. Um, so uh, he must have really impressed Notre Dame and uh, he will have his hands full in terms of impressing the Notre Dame fan base. Uh, it's, it's important. The recruiting thing is definitely very important, but I think we mentioned this before that it's very important for this coach this wide receivers coach to be able to develop talent because um, and attract it in 2023, the talent on the roster are going to be very young players. Um, there's not going to be a lot of experience on that roster at the wide receiver position because of all the guys that will be leaving. So he will have to be making sure that these young guys that he has that are freshmen last season, incoming freshmen are ready to go um, and can continue their development. Uh, that is going to be a very important part of this job. Next question we have is from the message board, uh, SL Hoosier 26 thoughts on Harry. He as the offensive line coach and how far is Notre Dame right now from the Georgia slash Alabama's of the world. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give a little anecdote about Harry before I give my opinion about that. When he left Tennessee to come to Notre Dame, this is how tricky sometimes <laughs> It was like a shoulder shrug at best. I mean, they were like, bye. Okay. You know, it wasn't like they were like, oh, no, we're letting the Hall of Fame coach go. He inherited a very difficult situation at Tennessee that he did a pretty good job with. I remember talking to one of the beat writers down there, and he said, it's amazing what he did, but the fans can't see that because they want you know, excellence, and and it was just not going to happen with the situation with all the injuries and the youth they had. So he goes out the door and comes to Notre Dame, and, you know, the people I had talked with about him thought that this could really work out, and it's one of Brian Kelly's best hires, if not his best hire uh, during his time there, and it certainly will, I think, rate among the great hires for Marcus Freeman. And, and the reason I say that is offensive line is so technique driven and nobody teaches it better than Harry Heastand. I think if you look at the criteria for the Joe Moore award, it's almost as if they're envisioning a Harry Heastand practice when they're writing that criteria. Hmm. Um, and I think the other thing Harry does is, again, this is a culture thing that the team leaders, the teams, it, it's the position group that sets the standard for the whole team. And I think that's a good thing to have on your football team. And I think they will, you know, they're the first ones at practice. They stay late after practice. If you picked a an offensive lineman, to interview during the Harry Heastand era, you're going to be waiting around a while till they came into the interview room uh, because they were going to be doing the extra work. Um, when I I wrote a piece earlier, what his return means 
to Notre Dame and talked to Aaron Taylor, former Notre Dame All-American and also one of the big wigs on the Joe Moore Award Committee. And he feels like this is the most important piece to Notre Dame winning a national championship. Um, so I, I definitely listen to, to Aaron when it comes to offensive line stuff. Now, how close is Notre Dame to Georgia and Alabama? I does Do you think the question Tyler means? Tyler's my – Tyler interprets things for me. He's the translator. <laughs> um, does he mean that – how close are they in general or from yeah, – Yeah, I think standpoint? it's more in general. Yeah, I think it was just – I think it was just a couple of separate questions that he lumped into together in one submission. Okay, so – my column that I will have in on Friday's website <laughs> and the website that's there every day, but it'll be there Friday. <laughs> um, will be, I, I'm so used to saying Friday's paper. Um, I can't say Saturday's paper for too much longer. Um, anyways, uh, it's about that very subject. What did we learn about Georgia and Alabama and Notre Dame's relationship with it? And, and I'll tell you, I'll give you the spoiler alert. The premise is that in general, when there's been these national championship games, there's kind of been a, a moment where Notre Dame is kind of told what they're not. You, you kind of watch that game and you say, you know what, they're making progress, but this is where they're not Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference in this game is they're not Alabama and Georgia, but it's not because their template's broken. It's because they need better execution of that template. They need more talent, but they have committed to that with a recruiting head coach like Marcus Freeman. The things that they have in place are the things they need to gain ground on Georgia and Alabama, and they have some of those elements in place. Uh, it's not a rude awakening that it has been in many of the other years, it's, it's some confirmation that they are doing things right and that they need to continue to make that kind of progress. But again, Alabama and Georgia aren't sitting targets. They are going to improve right. in what they do as well. So Notre Dame, you know, isn't just chasing a stationary target. They're chasing programs that are improving. Yeah, I think I think that's well said. I think there's you, you definitely sort of see the difference, particularly in the secondary and skill positions, and even even more on the interior of the defensive line and the exterior of the defensive line. Um, those are probably the biggest differences I would say in terms of um, the Alabamas and the Georgias and Notre Dame on a consistent basis, um, and sort of relating that to Harry Eastan and. I believe you said Aaron Taylor was the one who said this, that how it's the most important thing for Notre Dame to win a national championship. I think we, I think people saw this past season, what Clemson looked like when this offensive line isn't any good. Um, and that sort of removed Clemson from national championship contention. Um, and I would say that probably most people would agree that uh, as a collective Clemson probably has more skill talent than Notre Dame does. Now, I think Notre Dame can get close to that level. Um, I don't think that's unachievable. Um, and so that those are the those are the biggest difference between Notre Dame and the Alabamas and the Georgias and the depth that comes with that 
Um, but even with Alabama, you saw that without its two best receivers, its offense struggled now against a very, very, very good Georgia defense. Um, but a Georgia defense that it sort of had its way with a few weeks before that, um, it, it couldn't get things rolling without without some of its playmakers at wide receiver. Um, and Harry Heastan, yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't expect much different from Harry Heastan than what we saw before. I think Notre Dame should, fans should be aware of what he brings to, to Notre Dame. And um, I, if he still has the same drive, and I, I, I don't believe he would take the job at Notre Dame if he didn't have the same drive to be uh, as excellent – and demand the excellence from his players um, that I think Notre Dame will be will will once again have have great offensive lines um, with Harry Heastan leading them. One thing I would add, and and I've got this in the article I did the research. You look at the number of top fifty and top one hundred players the past, I guess, eight or nine years, um, and Georgia and Alabama are. And LSU and USC and Florida State are way over uh, Notre Dame in terms of those kind of players. In terms of putting people in the NFL draft and first or second round draft choices, Alabama still crushes everybody. So does Ohio State. But Notre Dame and Georgia are pretty even, almost identical in the number. So their player develop Notre Dame's player development is in the right place. And, and they've got done much better than Florida State, USC, some of these other schools that have had more top 50 and top 100 players. So the thought is, let's go get more top 50 and top 100 players. One more stat for you. So from, I believe it was the 20, I don't have it in front of me, but the 2013 to the 2021 cycle, no, 2014 to 2021, Notre Dame recruited two top 50 defensive players. In the 2023 class alone, there are four. And that class is only eight people deep so far. They still got a long way to go. And they have one top 50 player on defense in the 2022 class right now, and that's Jalen Sneed. And I think that's probably going to be it, even with some ratings bumps of people like Aiden Gobira. I doubt that he gets up to the top 50, but I think he's going to be – much higher than what he is now. But so, so in basically in 11 months or 12 months of Marcus Freeman, you get five top 50 defensive players where you had two over a eight or nine year span. And so that's why I'm saying Notre Dame is doing the right things, that player development and things. And they're, and they're not in denial that they can play ball control and win a national championship doing that. They're like, we need to get more dynamic. And that's why I think the takeaway from Monday night wasn't a slap in the face this time. Next question is from Christine Ortega at Christine O-N-D. And it relates to some more news from today. We have been spoiled the past several seasons in having two terrific kickers back-to-back, Justin Yoon and Jonathan Doerr. Is Blake Group of that caliber? And is Harrison Leonard no longer considered a viable option? Uh, well, let's start with Harrison Leonard. I think, you know, I'm surprised that he hasn't uh, uh, he hasn't gotten more of an opportunity. When I've watched him in practice, he looks pretty good. Now, he doesn't get the opportunities in practice in fall practice that he did in the spring. But in the spring, he looks pretty good to me. He does everything the other kickers 
do. <laughs> um, and so maybe he's just extra insurance against an injury and so forth. And I think that's maybe more where things are. I think Jonathan Doerr playing through an injury all year probably got the coaching staff to thinking we need a little bit more depth in what we have. I'm not sure that they know what they have in Josh Bryan yet. Um, and certainly a freshman punter, there's a little bit of an adventure there because you don't know how they're going to react to pressure and things like that. So I don't think it's uh, bringing this grad transfer in. The one thing about people can say, well, he's from Arkansas State. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what the competition is when you're a kicker. Right. So, you know, the, the goalpost is the same distance away uh, that it is at Arkansas. So uh, this kid had a really good record with kicking. I think Notre Dame's put themselves in a, a good spot, and I think they'll have a scholarships to do it. Obviously, they're handing them out to walk on, so they're feeling pretty good about being able to hit that 85 number by the time classes start in the fall. Yeah, and that references to Matt Salerno receiving a, a scholarship offer to Notre Dame and, and Michael Vinson, a long snapper who had milk, been, um, aka Milk, uh, had received a, a scholarship. Um, I don't know if that was before or after the bowl game, but um, in terms of group, I think he probably will take the title of smallest guy on the team. Um, he was listed at five foot eight, one hundred and forty eight pounds. <laughs> uh, so he's not he's not a big guy. Um, but he's had success as a kicker. He was a career 76.6% on field goals. Now he's had some good seasons and some, and some not some, so good seasons. He had two seasons where he uh, made 80% or more of his field goals. And then he had two seasons where he made 67, less than 60% of his field goals. And he was in the sixties range. So they certainly w would prefer him be in that eighties range rather than the, the high sixties range. Um, and we will see how, how he produces at Notre Dame, but he, I had sort of indicated in the last podcast that it would make some sense if Brian Mason, come, I don't even know if I, it was Brian Mason at that point, if we were talking about who the special teams coordinator was in those specific terms, but the, whoever the special teams coordinator would be would, would want maybe someone with experience because that position group with both a, a what will be a sophomore next year um, who has kicked one career extra point um, and then a, a freshman punter getting some experience in that room would be valuable. And, and Blake group certainly brings that um, to Notre Dame. So um, meeting the standard of, of Justin Yoon and Jonathan Dora will be high, but I think there's some reason to believe that he could do that. Now I, it is, I think it is, is worth mentioning that I doubt he will be the kickoffs person. I think he had maybe like 15 kickoffs in his, uh, in his Arkansas state career, maybe a, a couple more than that. Um, and, and I think 14 of them came in one season and that was his worst season as a field goal kicker. So I don't know if there, that is a correlation or not, um, but I, he, distance isn't necessarily a strength. He had one made field goal of 50 yards during his career and that was this past season. Um, so I, I don't, don't expect him to be attempting many field goals beyond 50 yards um, in Notre Dame, which um, would could align with him not necessarily being the guy that the, Notre Dame looks for in terms of kickoff. So you can get some experience for Josh Bryan that way. Next question is from MAGA2024 on the message board. When is the $80 million plus Goog expansion facility upgrade project scheduled to start? Um, this subscriber has been very adamant about wanting to get you to ask Jack Swarbrick about this. And so 
Um, he continues, will you ask Jack Swarbrick for a direct answer and follow up if when he deflects and brings up the indoor practice facility? This has been talked about for years and may have contributed to losing Brian Kelly to LSU. Why isn't the Notre Dame administration excited to stick up to Brian Kelly and give an elite recruiter line Freeman the tool, I think he meant like Freeman, the tools to get the best players? Well, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. So let's start with when is this going to happen? It's going to happen as soon as they have funding for it. You know, I remember when I spent the day with Brian Kelly in 2016, he laid out the Goog expansion, what it was going to look like, what was going to be involved, what the benefit of it was, and also the indoor facility. So that hadn't been hatched yet at, at that point um, and what the benefit of that was. Both of those projects are more pragmatic than they are window dressing. It's not part of Notre Dame isn't losing recruits because the Goog expansion doesn't exist. It's not like they're like, well, you know, Clemson has a slide. We need a swing set. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really functional helping the team function during the week leading up to game days. You know, right now when they have training table, they have to cater everything in every day. They would like to have a kitchen facility so they could do that in there, have better meals, have it easier uh, for everybody to access the meals so they'd have a kitchen facility. There would be more recovery areas, meaning, you know, body recover areas for after games, which would help you get through injuries quicker. They'd also have an area where they would do their studying so that they, if they needed to be kind of sequestered from the rest of the Notre Dame student population, they could have that area and they would be, it would be right there. They wouldn't have to say, well, I have to walk all the way to the library to do the studying. They could do it right there. They would have their own weight room. They share the weight room as it is now. Um, at least they are no longer sharing the Loftus Center. That was a big problem in terms of getting in team workouts, team runs, because they had to share it with so many of the other sports. So it's, it's a big thing uh, in terms of just running a more efficient program, not bells and whistles and, and kids showing up and going, oh my God, why isn't the Goog expanded yet? Um, as far as how to ask questions to Jack Swarbrick, I think I can handle that. Um, uh, I don't think he gives me the runaround. I think he's been pretty consistent. And as far as Brian leaving because the Goog wasn't expanded, Brian knows why it wasn't expanded. Um, I've seen that narrative, and that's kind of something that uh, Brian Kelly's agent has kind of spun out there and some people have eaten up. I'm not buying it. I, I do think Brian was all about, for his 12 years there, he was all about improving the program and sometimes putting his head kind of on the chopping block to do that and making administrators mad, making fans mad, uh, making a lot of people mad to get these things done. And he was able to get them done. In this particular case, Jack Swarbrick didn't push back on any of this. It was just the practicality that they need to have the funding in place. And I think Brian Kelly looked around and saw all these escalated salaries and didn't buy that, hey, 
um, the world is coming out of a pandemic where people were taking salary cuts just last year. Notre Dame had a hiring freeze, freeze just last year. And, and I don't think that that's why Brian Kelly left. I do think he wanted those improvements. He asked for them. There was no pushback. What they couldn't agree on was how quickly that would be able to be a reality. So, you know, that's where it stands. Brian's going to stick to his story about alignment and all that stuff. And he can do that, but I don't think that that's why Brian Kelly left. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not something that's as simple as like, okay, let's take $80 million out of the endowment and write it for a GUI expansion. That's not how endowments work. That's not how uh, facility upgrades work. Um, maybe the appointment of Marcus Freeman as the next head coach will inspire some more people to step up and want to donate um, to put their name. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe some of our subscribers can pull their money together and uh, see if they could get a, maybe we can call it the insider in the insider. Maybe we can get an insider lounge inside the Goog. That would be, that'd be pretty cool. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I mean, I don't, you don't need me to defend you, but I, I think you, you're, you're pretty straightforward and, and persistent in asking Jack Swarbrick questions about this. And I think we've, we've covered a, a plenty of times. And I don't think, necessarily like you asking him another time which you will uh, that's not necessarily going to speak I, I will get to that i want to wait till the assistant coaching carousel settles down before right. i get an audience with jack i you know maybe get a little bit further down the road with what's happening with the playoffs since he's so involved with that i'd like it to be you know have a lot an interview that's pretty wide ranging rather than just saying i want this question answered today yeah. Um, and, and we'll get around to it. And I, and I give, you know, the, the questioner credit. I mean, he's not reading all our South Bend Tribune stuff. I did probably more Q and A's with Jack Swarbrick than anybody in the last five years. And so this will be new content for them and we'll get to it and just be patient and uh, we'll get you your answer. Yeah. But they are not going to lose recruits in the meantime. Let me tell you. Yeah, and you asking the question isn't going to necessarily speed up the process either. Um, next right. question from the message board is from Sawfish1. Can Notre Dame level the playing field with Texas A&M and Texas with regard to the NIL situation? I don't know that there's a playing field to be leveled. I think what college football needs across the board are more guardrails with name, image, and likeness uh, because there really isn't – there, I mean, you have to be so off the rails, corrupt to to get the NCAA's attention in this and, and somehow get yourself in trouble. So there needs to be more regulation around name, image, and likeness. And it's not going to come from the NCAA. It's going to come from Congress. Uh, so... The one thing that Notre Dame has to his advantage and as much as any other school in the country is there's a great brand there to sell. And there's, you know, a worldwide fan base. And that's something that a lot of schools don't have. And so I think Notre Dame will do fine in name and image likeness. I don't think they will do fine when it comes to cheating in name, image, and likeness because. It's just not going to happen on Marcus Freeman's watch. But 
it, it's a it's a problem for everybody in college football right now that there's not better definition and regulation of what's on the right side of the line and what's on the wrong side of the line. Yeah, and I, I don't know that anyone can say with def, I mean anyone that thinks stuff isn't happening that's outside the lines is being naive, but I don't know that anyone can say exactly what is saying what is happening and how it's happening. I mean the the rules or lack thereof rules in place allow things to happen in ways that, I mean, take Texas, for example, where they say every offensive lineman is going to get X amount of money. They're not tying that to specific guys to come to Texas, but if they make it clear that that money is going to be available and they not being Texas itself, though, although the coaches I'm sure could maybe reference it, I'm not exactly sure how, how that, how that works, but the coaches aren't pulling their money together to make it happen. There's boosters that are sort of setting up this system that, that, that can allow their players to take advantage of it. So, I mean, some of that would have to come to, to Notre Dame supporters to sort of put that in place if they wanted to do something similar. Now, I think Notre Dame ha- isn't, isn't in enabling people to do that in the same way. I mean, last I checked, and I haven't checked recently, is that there was no public NIL policy for Notre Dame listed on its website, its, its athletics website. Um, now, I don't know what the future plan is for that. I think there can probably be some improvement to to give fans a clear idea of what they can do to support um, athletes and how, how to go about that process. Um, but Notre Dame is going to be very careful with that, and they're not going to they're not going to necessarily push the boundaries in terms of pushing the lines in terms of the rules. Um, what they can do is point to Kyle Hamilton and say, Hey, Kyle Hamilton made X. Um, now maybe they prefer to keep that information private. Maybe Kyle Hamilton doesn't want to uh, have that information public. Um, the IRS. I, I think that, yeah, for, uh, for tax purposes, I don't know. Uh, no, we're not accusing Kyle Hamilton of tax fraud, but uh, I, I think that um, that's the type of thing that I think Notre Dame is going to do. And I think it's going to take longer for that to be established because there's not necessarily a long track record of that yet. Um, if Notre Dame wants to do that, like Isaiah Foskey, I think he should be in a position to really cash in on NIL this coming season with the season that he had um, and him coming back to Notre Dame and the high profile that he will be in. So um, I think uh, that's probably how Notre Dame is going to combat it. I don't know how successful they will be. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's pretty unpredictable what this NIL situation is going to turn into across the country, let alone just for Notre Dame. Oh, well, we know we're, we're probably going to have another hour and a half podcast here, but we'll try to keep pick up the pace a little bit. Um, Rhino1134 from the message board asked, with Tyler Buckner as the presumed quarterback, do you expect a heavier read option style run pass game that constantly stresses a defense with his mobility? Would tempo be much more prevalent? It does feel like Notre Dame is poised to take a step forward offensively with a quarterback that has a lot of tools to work with. Okay, I'll answer the back end of that first. I don't know that tempo is necessarily going to be a staple. I think it's something that they could turn to. It certainly seemed to help Jack Cohn. I don't know that it'll necessarily help Tyler Buckner. And there's times where you do want to slow the game down uh, and shorten it if you have the lead and run the ball and do things like that. Will there be more run-pass option? I would think so. I would think that there would be runs built into the into the offense now that you have a player of that 
skill set. I also think a lot of Tyler Buckner's best running will be him just saying, okay, there's nothing open. I'm going to take off and make something out of this. So we saw both from him. Uh, I think what, what we didn't see from him that we'll see more of him is just a better passing game. I think Tyler Buckner in practice and in potential is a better passer than maybe you saw in games last year. And he'll get the opportunity to make progress with that this spring. So I think if you come to the blue gold game, you'll see more of the versatile uh, Tyler Buckner. It was interesting in the national championship game, kind of the takeaways in the first Alabama Georgia game, Bryce Young had 40 yards rushing. And in the second one, he had minus 42. And and Stetson Bennett did a lot of good things with his legs. Um, and I think you need a quarterback that can do that. That's where I maybe thought Jack Cohn wasn't a great fit. Now, he certainly morphed into a much better quarterback than I thought he could be. But I still think ideally for what Tommy Reese wants to do with his offense, he needs a quarterback with a little bit more mobility than Jack Cohn. And when you look at the guys that he's recruiting in the 23 class, especially, they're not Brandon Wimbush runners, but they are guys that can do things with their legs and uh, either extending plays or making you pay by leaving the middle of the field wide open and, and having playing cover, you know, having eight people in coverage and letting that quarterback run for a little while. Yeah. I mean, Tommy Reese would be doing a disservice to Tyler Buckner if the offense didn't look different than what it looked like with Jack Cohn at quarterback. Um, you have to sort of maximize Tyler Buckner's skill set. Now I think people, I think some people that are skeptical of Tyler Buckner are worried that it's going to be like Tyler Buckner as the leading rusher in, in Notre Dame's offense. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think what we saw from Tyler Buckner this past season was for a specific purpose, and it was to open up a running game that was struggling with Jack Cohen at quarterback, um, and that's why he was used the way he was. I don't know that that's going to be his usage moving. Well, I'm fairly confident that that won't be his usage moving forward if he's the starting quarterback. Otherwise, I don't think he will be the starting quarterback. Um, so I, I think the passing game will be much more of a threat with him in the game in the future than it was um, this past season, um, and, I, and I do think the RPOs and, and finding ways to take advantage take advantage of the defense by using Tyler Buckner's skill set, whether that's making those reads or having that mobility, um, I think that's something that Tyron Reese is going to need to tap into. Next question from Twitter, at Mike Devoy one with Joe Wilkins Jr., Avery Davis, and Braden Lindsey all returning, who do you see as the starting wide receivers? I'm thinking Wilkins, Wilkins Davis, and Lorenzo Styles, assuming all are ready to play in August. Styles has outplayed Lindsey, and Wilkins is a bigger, reliable pass catcher. Yeah, I, I think it's I, I think it's going to be interesting. I think Lindsey is going to be hard to if he's healthy. I have a feeling he's going to surge. Wilkins is is an interesting guy because when you talk to his teammates, they rave about. He's just this close, and I'm holding my fingers close, <laughs> this close to just um, turning it on and being this great receiver. We just haven't seen it consistently in games. 
the guy that I'm most confident about is Styles. Yeah. Uh, I think he is going to be Notre Dame's leading receiver among the wide receivers next year. And I wouldn't ride off Colsey and I wouldn't ride off Tobias Merriweather either. Um, if Davis is healthy, I think Davis is, is a starter too. So Davis and Styles and somebody else, it would seem to make sense that that be a bigger receiver. So that would squeeze Lindsay into a rotation spot rather than, um, rather than a starting spot. So Styles Davis, and then Wilkins, Colsey, or Merriweather. I, I wouldn't write off Tobias if he were a, if he were at Notre Dame right now. I think he'd have a little bit more of an opportunity. But man, he looked good in uh, San Antonio. He looks like a guy that could get on the field and help them as a freshman. Yeah, I think in the perfect world for Notre Dame, it should the starters should matter less, and there should be much heavier rotation and get these guys involved and, and not be as pigeonholed and needing a big body receiver on the field at all times and being able to be flexible with those roles, have guys play different positions um, and sort of expand on that as much as possible. Now, obviously, the talent that you have at hand dictates that, um, but I think if if everyone is healthy on on – this team and maybe they add another wide receiver in from the transfer portal. Um, I think there, the talent is there. Now I don't know that there's one guy. I, I think Lorenzo style probably would be the guy. that's like, he is a star in the making. Um, I don't know if that's going to be in his sophomore season or if it's going to take a little bit longer for him to get to that point. Um, but I, I, I think anyone sleeping on Avery Davis is probably making a mistake as long as he can get healthy. I'm curious to see what Joe Wilkins can do but I don't know that those are guys are guys that you can't take off the field. I think Braden Lindsay can continue to get better. I think he made maybe more subtle improvements this season um, than, than some would like to see. I think people are expecting big breakout crazy plays from Braden Lindsay because of his speed. And he's, he's had more work to do in becoming a well-rounded receiver. And I think he's getting closer to that. I don't think he, he's not going to be the, the next Will Fuller in, in his final season at Notre Dame. I don't think um, so. I think there's talent there. But I think to maximize that and to, to get the most out of the group is to to be less specific and like, okay, we need Deion Colsey on the field at all times because he's our only big receiver that we can rely on. I think there there needs to be depth that can be utilized and the the way they're utilized be maybe more varied than it has in the past. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie with the current roster short on wide receivers. Um, and thanks, thankfully, Marie, because of how long we are on the podcast, this isn't a great big uh, philosophy question, which she's, we, she's pretty good at asking us. Do you think there's any chance that Xavier Watts or JoJo Johnson will go back to that position being wide receiver this, this season? I don't think Watts will. I think they're committed to him on defense, um, especially since you're going to have turnover next year at the safety position. You're you're likely going, you're going to lose Houston Griffith because he's taking his COVID exemption year. You're going to likely lose DJ Brown. He, he wouldn't take a COVID year. And there's a chance Brandon Joseph could come for a year, play himself into an NFL uh, draftable position and just be at Notre Dame for a year. So you have to be prepared for that. And you have to have guys coming up and you have Ramon Henderson uh, that's, that's very promising, but I think, uh, 
you need Xavier Watts in that group. As far as JoJo Johnson, the numbers at cornerback would lend itself to somebody moving over from that position if they really needed the body. Um, and JoJo Johnson, because he was injured last year, really didn't have a chance to establish himself. So if they felt absolutely felt they needed to do, there there are numbers at corner to be able to do that. But I don't think Watts is going to be one of them from safety. Yeah, I my personal preference, I think I'd rather see Watts move to Rover than move to receiver if you're going to move him. Um, I think the depth at Rover is is a little bit suspect with both Isaiah Pryor and Paul Moala leaving the program this offseason behind Jack Kaiser. Now, maybe the defense looks different in whatever his scheme is, and so that position looks a little bit different, and maybe you have more confidence in a nickelback, um, and maybe Xavier Watts becomes that nickelback. I, I, I don't know. I think there's a number of different options you could do with Xavier Watts on defense. So unless he's, like, dying to play wide receiver, and, and that's that's the that's the only way you're going to get the best out of him, um, I'd like to see him on defense. JoJo Johnson, I'm more open to, like you, like you mentioned, like if he wants to move to receiver, that's okay. I, I don't know that he would be a guy that you're going to necessarily rely on this season, but they're probably, if they're moving a receiver, they're probably moving someone to receiver is probably a depth situation in case some of those guys that are healthy aren't ready. And they may need to do something like that for the spring because of, of limited numbers at the position in the spring. Next question is from at Buster Biven. How will the tight end heavy wide receiver light roster affect the design of next year's offense? Which 2022 early enrollees are you most excited to see in spring practice? And same question for returning players, not named Tyler Buckner. There's a lot there. Okay. The first part (laughs) of that was the first part of that was what Tyler, how will the tight end heavy wide receiver light roster affect the design of next year's offense? Well, Tommy Reese pledges to design it around what the personnel is, but that doesn't mean they're going to be three tight ends and and a cloud of dust and that kind of thing. I think he wants to I think he wants to show the wide receivers off in the yeah. offense and I think he wants to have that versatility because he wants to attract more wide receivers and he also feels like right. he needs to. Yeah. In, in games against teams where Notre Dame has better personnel, they can they can play the tight end game and they can play the ball possession game. When you get against Ohio State, when you get against Clemson, and when you play a playoff team, you're going to have to have that speed on the perimeter to go along with those tight ends. You won't be able to just play ball control against those teams. So I think, yes, he's going to want to um to to show off the wide receivers and I think there's enough quality there even if there's not a ton of quantity as far yeah, as okay I go think, ahead I think there should be I mean we saw how Michigan version of that panned out for itself I mean that's sort of what um not too different from what Notre Dame has been when it's been at its best in terms of having a Joe Moore award offensive Joe Moore award winning offensive line um, and uh, a, a running game that's really good, but it, it, it could not, it could not compete with, with Georgia. It wasn't, it wasn't able to overcome that and it, because it's lacking at the skill position like, like wide receiver. Now Michigan doesn't have as good of tight ends as, as, as Notre Dame does, but I, I don't, I just don't see that being the ideal for Notre Dame's 
both success this coming season and and in the long term. So I think Notre Dame is going to push. Now, obviously, it's going to work to its strengths, but I think Buster Bivens probably giving less credit to its Notre Dame wide receivers than than I think would, is what they would merit. Um, moving forward to the 2022 early enrollees, who are you most excited to see this spring? I'm I'm curious about the four linebackers. I want to see how kind of camera ready those guys are. Um, Tyson Ford has an opportunity, so I, I kind of want to see what he can do. Um, I, I, I'm also interested to see Steve Angeli in person just because there's been such debate about his viability of being a factor on this roster. Um, he was a, definitely a good factor on the old pot of gold podcast. He was a good guest. <laughs> And uh, Billy Shrouth, just because I think he's the best of the offensive linemen, not that I expect him to crack the starting lineup, but I'm eager to see what Harry does with a young guy like that in the first spring to see what kind of progress with that kind of raw strength. Uh, Because I think Billy Shrouth is going to be a starter here at some point and a really good one. Yeah, so you're gonna answer that part, and then we'll do the last part. Yeah, J- speaking of pot of gold, guess uh, Jaden Mickey is another guy in the spring that I'm interested in seeing. Um, Aiden Gobiro would be on that list for me, um, and I think the, the linebackers, Jalen Sneed, um, particularly maybe maybe Nolan Ziegler as well. If see how ready he is to maybe be a reliable backup at that rower position, where I said that the depth is a little bit suspect going into the season. I think they certainly can move some guys around, but um, and then maybe Jalen Sneak could be that too um, for Notre Dame next season. So um, those those are the guys that I, I'm the most interested in seeing. I'm all, I'm always interested in seeing offensive linemen, but um, I think there's a very slim chance that either Billy Shrouth or, or Joey Tonona get 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 much playing time this coming season for Notre Dame. The last part of it, it's hard to eliminate. Like, who wouldn't I be excited to see <laughs> among the players that come back? You know, probably in terms of, you know, what I'm kind of looking for in the spring is if Notre Dame hits dead ends with things and 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 where they need to improve the most. So the safeties in the corners will get a lot of my attention. Yep. Um, Harry Heastan with that young offensive line will get my attention because that's really important that they are much better than average instead of just, hey, they're improving. Um and I'll just pick two other random people, Jordan Batello and Mitchell Evans. Yeah, I mean, I think the spring's going to be a little bit different because there's the, the staff turnover. We're going to probably be just as interested in the coaches and what they're, what they're bringing to the equation as we are the players. Um, so I think that will be a very important part of what we're um, trying to observe and, and read into and analyze in the spring. Um, yeah, the, those guys that you mentioned, the, the secondary specifically, where the depth is at, um, at, at safety and corner, um, is very, very important. Um, what sort – how can Clarence Lewis rebound or does Notre Dame's defense in the greater picture rebounding go beyond Clarence Lewis and what are the, what are those other options look like? Um, I think those are very important questions this spring. Certainly Harry Heastan, like you mentioned, and, and the offensive line um, will be – will be fun to watch um, and uh, how those, how those younger receivers continue to develop 
um, beyond, I think we're pretty confident in Lorenzo Styles. What, what, how, how big of a next step can Deion Colsey make? What sort of impact can Jaden Thomas make? Um, those are things that I, that I'm uh, interested to see uh, this spring. Next question is from at Patrick Shields Zero. How should Notre Dame approach the transfer portal with Marcus Freeman being such a heavy recruiting coach? And can Notre Dame land big name transfers from lower performing academic schools? The answer to the second part is no. Um, unless they are really performing well academically at those schools and they have credits that can transfer, that's going to be an issue even when a kid is maybe a four-point student, um, if he doesn't have the kind of classes that Notre Dame is requiring, let's say he's just finished his sophomore year or halfway through his sophomore year, if he hasn't taken the kind of classes that's going to transfer to Notre Dame, it's going to be a difficult negotiation with the admissions office. The easiest transaction is going to be grad transfers. And honestly, that's probably what Notre Dame needs more than undergraduates. You know, Brandon Joseph is a little bit different case in that you're getting an All-American uh, from Northwestern, not just a promising safety there. And again, with him being at Northwestern, it was an easier transaction for an undergrad. But I think Notre Dame's, you know, I asked Brian Kelly about it before he left. And he still wanted to just kind of sprinkle them in, not have them reliant on the transfer portal. And I think Marcus Freeman's going to be the same. Notre Dame's player development model was so good that I think you use it to fill holes, um, especially unexpected ones, and, and rely on your recruiting and your player development model primarily. But it, you can't ignore it because – it's helpful. I mean, you look at Notre Dame this year, Jack Cohn, and I know people weren't high on Kane Madden, but he started you know, 13 games for Notre Dame. So th they've finally gotten better at the grad transfer thing. You know, early on, they had a lot of <laughs> players that were injured that were never factors, and they've done a much better job of scouring the portal. And I think there's better quality in the portal now, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're ever going to be super aggressive in the portal. Now, maybe they're – I mean, I think it's probably going to – I mean, it, it'll be reflective of guys that fit at Notre Dame that are in the portal. Um, that That is always going to play a role. It's, it's still going to play a role in recruiting, and there's no – and it, it played an even bigger role, I think, in the transfer portal because you're either looking at grad transfers or you're looking at, at a very limited number of undergrads that can make the leap from their school – to Notre Dame. Um, so I think it, it, it's very reliant on what, who those people are in the portal. Notre Dame can't just go into the portal every year and expect to find um, a need to be filled there. And the hope is long-term that you're recruiting at a high enough level that that isn't necessarily recruiting and developing. That isn't necessarily something you have to rely on to make sure that you have a successful team on an annual basis. Uh, SJB 75 asked, do either of you, either of you believe Tommy Reese will aggr aggressively pursue a transfer portal quarterback for 2022? I don't think aggressively, I think more passively, um, you're not going to have somebody in spring practice. You really want to see how spring practice plays out between, uh, Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner and Steve Angeli. 
And then when you get to the end of spring practice, if you've had an injury, if you get the sense that one of those quarterbacks isn't going to stick around, then I think, or if you think three quarterbacks aren't going to be enough in terms of depth, then I think Notre Dame has a chance to be more aggressive. Now, remember the, uh, the players have to be in the portal by May 1st to be eligible to play next year. And that's for grad transfers as well. They don't have to be, they don't have to have picked their schools, but they need to be in the portal. But I think across the country, you're going to see another wave. You, you know, the first wave were guys that wanted to be at their new school for spring practice. You're going to get another wave of players after spring practice. And again, maybe there's a better fit there for a depth QB if Tommy feels like three QBs is really risky to go into the season with. Yeah, the, the quarterback thing is it's such a delicate situation. that I mean, Notre, Notre Dame is going to probably do its due diligence on many transfer portal quarterbacks, whether they're grad transfers or there's maybe a couple of undergrads that they think make sense. But it's I just think there's too much faith in Tyler Buckner internally um, to sort of shake that up too much. Now, I know people might not want to hear that or um, don't necessarily agree with that, but I think that's I think that that that's my read. Now maybe maybe they're they're holding their cards closer to the vest, and maybe they're just gonna pull a surprise off and and bring in someone. Uh, but at, a, a lot a lot of those guys that are at the top of the wish list for places across the country are probably gonna be shuffled in to other places pretty quickly, and um, I just don't think that. Uh, it makes a, a lot of sense for what Notre Dame wants to do. Um, I, 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 we, I think we've covered this before. I, I, my, I think the ideal situation would be a guy that's like the third stringer. Now I know that's not a, very exciting and it's going to be a, it's a small, small hole to fill and, and figure out how to figure to get someone to come to Notre Dame to be that. Um, but that, that, that's oh. kind of like a Brendan Clark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have lost you. Lost to your, your your guys that have have transferred out, but that's that's not how it's played out. Uh, next question is from at Flanner Jim. Many spoke of the Notre Dame collapse in the Fiesta Bowl. Built into that seems to be an assumption that our team on the field was clearly superior, but fell apart for various reasons. A couple weeks out, do you all believe we were significantly better than Oklahoma State? Well, I, from a talent standpoint, from a raw talent standpoint, Notre Dame was better. I mean, they have better athletes. Oklahoma State had one starter that was higher than a three-star recruit, and that was their quarterback. And the fact that Notre Dame was ahead by so much, yeah, I mean, you should be able to hold a lead like that. Um, but I think Oklahoma State was a really good team for other reasons. I think they, first of all, they had a very good coaching staff. That's a very solid program. Spencer Sanders, even though he's been erratic when he's been on, he was good enough to be the Big 12 first team, all Big 12 quarterback, even though he had some uh, bad games in, in some of his bigger games. Um, and then that defense had been together so long. That was a veteran defense that with a really good defensive coordinator, although he didn't coordinate the uh, championship game, but they had played with him all year. And they had a great scheme and they had really good athletes, really good cohesion. 
I think Oklahoma State was a really good team, but I think Notre Dame should have won that game. So that's where I land on that. Yeah, I, I don't know how much I buy into Notre Dame being significantly better. I think that probably at the top end it had more better players, but Notre Dame wasn't wasn't at its peak. I mean, Notre Dame had lost guys to injury. Notre Dame had lost guys to to sitting out for the for the NFL draft. Um, so Notre Dame was a little bit handcuffed in that sense, but I think they were still good enough to beat Oklahoma State. And I think the collapse has more to do with just the margin of victory that was squandered uh, or the margin of lead that was squandered um, than it does like the reflection of, of the, of the talent. Yeah, and, it, and it was about not having a counter punch. Right. You know, Oklahoma state adjusted Notre Dame didn't adjust on either side of the ball to that counter punch. Right. And so that's what the collapse is about. It's not that there's no way Notre Dame should have lost to a team of Oklahoma state's talent. It's just, there's probably no way that Notre Dame should deserve to lose a game where they had, built such an advantage of, of, of being up 28 to seven late in the first half. Couple more questions. Big Asian ND asks a uh, big, big Asian ND 2000 asks Harry. He likes to play the best five, regardless of position If coming out of fall camp. Tosh Baker is one of the four best linemen by a margin. Who do you see moving to guard among Alt Blake and Baker? So Joe Alt Blake Fisher and Tosh Baker. Well, I'm going to say Jarrett Patterson is number one. And I would say the way that Alt and Blake played, I, I think they're better than Baker. So I think those two stay at tackle and Baker moves inside. You know, now, again, players aren't static. There's times there are offensive linemen go into spring or the next year and they have transformed their games and they jump over somebody on the depth chart. And I think um, to a certain extent during the season, Andrew Kristoffic was that kind of player. Zeke Carell was a much more celebrated recruit. He was an interior guy by, you know, experience. I mean, that's what he came in, was recruited at. Kristoffic was a tackle. But Kristoffic was a better player. So I wouldn't rule out somebody with such a, you know, kind of freaky athletic build as Tosh Baker to improve to the point where he could beat somebody out. But my goodness, Joe Alt played at such a high level and is a guy that's ascending. And I mean, uh, Martin, the defensive end of Oklahoma State was marveling about Blake Fisher. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is a freshman that played two games and one of them he didn't finish and he didn't play in the 11 games in the middle of that. Uh, I think Blake Fisher is a special, special player. So Baker for me is the guard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, to be honest, it's kind of hard for me to imagine this being the scenario that would play out. Um, but in this scenario, I think it, it's, it has to be Tosh Baker moving into guard. I, I haven't necessarily seen the athleticism that Tosh Baker has translate to the football field, um, at least at Notre Dame. Uh, so, I mean, maybe Mary Harry Heastan can get that out of him, uh, but I, I, I haven't seen that come to fruition. And I think what we've seen from Joe Alt and uh, Blake Fisher is that those guys can do that and they have that athleticism that translates they're sound fundamentally, um, and, and they can they can withstand 
the demands of the tackle position. So I think it would be tough to move either of those guys inside the guard. So it would end up being Tosh Baker in this scenario. I like big Asian ND's question though, because who Harry thinks are the best five is not necessarily who Jeff Quinn thought was the best five. Yeah. And he, uh, Harry Heaston could care less what we think is the best five as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, he can listen to the podcast and laugh. <laughs> uh, last question from any Davis to what freshman and early enrollee do you think is the best chance to make an impact? Based on, you know, position opportunity and based on also the, you know, their, you know, out of the box, kind of not out of the box, but uh, camera ready kind of status. The two guys that I would say probably have the chance, most chance to make an impact are Tyson Ford and Jalen Sneed. Those would be my two picks. Other than the punter. Yeah. Well, he, he's not, a, he's not an early enrollee. So that's, oh, that's right. He's not an early enrollee. He, I gave he, him too much credit there. <laughs> he wouldn't count. Yeah. I think those, those are probably close, uh, the, the closest to the right answers that you can get. Jaden Mickey's a guy that I had suggested to, I think, I think, so the answer is probably pretty similar to guys that we're the most excited to see um, because I think usually that lends to being okay. Where, how does this guy translate to playing at Notre Dame immediately? Um, now I'm always interested to see like what what is the the growth of those guys eventually, but I think those are those are guys and and like I mentioned Aiden Gobira as well. I think um, he's a guy that I think can find a role at Notre Dame as well. Um, even though if that, Foskey hadn't come back, he would have been on my list. Yeah, and it would be interesting to see sort of what that defensive end combination is. Now, if uh, if Riley Mills bumps out to strong side defensive end, is something that I th- think could be possible and. Now we're talking about a new defensive line coach and that person's outlook on on the positions for these players. So um, it's sort of wide open there in terms of what that looks like, although there are a lot of bodies there um, to compete with. So um, it should be a, a fascinating spring uh, to see where, where those guys end up. And then uh, I think uh, maybe maybe there's a guy or two that come in in the summer that can compete for a chance to have an impact as well. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I promise they will not all be this long. Um, There's just so much going on as of late that the first two for this feed have been extremely long. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you can find us on the various podcast platforms. Um, So subscribe to us there if you haven't already. Um, And if you like what you hear, give us a star rating and leave a review. We'll be back next week with another podcast. Hopefully we can stick to that promise until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your Notre Dame football offseason coverage needs. 